Well, God has given 1 John to us. He has spoken 1 John to us as his word. So let's pray and ask him to help us understand what he says. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word. Uh, we thank you for this book of 1 John. We pray that as we begin looking at it today, that you will help us to know true things about you, that we may, um, that we may have right relationship with you through Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Now, sometimes, sometimes you get a, a picture in your mind of something. You, uh, you imagine that it's a certain way. You, you believe it's a certain way. In your mind, you're sure this is how it is. But then at some point, you find out that what you imagine, it doesn't match up with the evidence. It doesn't match up with what you can see and hear and touch. So I imagine myself as this nice, calm, laid-back, cool person... That's, that's the picture of my character that I have in my mind. But I keep finding, and more and more as I keep having more and more children, that my picture doesn't match up with reality. If I actually listen to myself, I'm this grumpy, impatient person yelling at his kids to eat their dinner. Hardly the nice, calm, laid-back person that I feel inside I am. Or physically. I imagine myself as this young, fit university student, which I'm sure I was only yesterday. But my mental picture doesn't match up to reality. The person who looks back at me from the mirror is this strange stranger, this middle-aged bloke with bags under his eyes. Uh, sometimes, the, sometimes the picture in your mind doesn't match up with the evidence of how things actually are. Now, when it comes to God, people have all kinds of different mental pictures. They imagine all kinds of ideas about God. Maybe they imagine there is no God. Everything's an accident. Nothing has any meaning or significance. There's no power or intelligence behind the universe. Other people, most people, believe there is a God. And they have a picture in their minds of what he's like. So they say things like this. The God I believe in is very kind. He loves fluffy animals and peace and crystals or something like that. Or, you know, some posters that you see. What's your mental picture of God? Who do you think he or she or it is? And, and how does this God that you imagine, how does he, she or it feel about you? How are things between you? Are things okay between you and this God that you imagine? We all have our mental pictures. We all have our imaginations. But in the Bible today, we see a unique claim. This letter that we're looking at, it's written by a bloke who claims to have evidence about God, hard evidence. He claims to have seen and heard and touched stuff which enables him to know the truth about God. Now, this bloke, John is his name, he's not claiming to tell us stuff that he's made up or imagined. He's not claiming to tell us some new philosophy. He's not claiming to tell us some picture that he has in his mind. No, no, he's giving us testimony of things that he has seen and heard and touched. Now, a bit of background, a bit of background. Uh, John, he, he was a fairly ordinary sort of a bloke. He worked with his brother in his dad's fishing business. And everything seemed to be going along okay. But at the age of about 20, something happened to John. Something that turned his life upside down. 
John met a man called Jesus. John was so impressed by Jesus that he chucked in the family business and spent his time hanging around with Jesus. And he saw some amazing stuff. He saw Jesus do extraordinary miracles, healing diseases, walking on water, calming storms. John saw amazing things and he heard Jesus' teaching. Again, stunning, mind-blowing teaching about God and man and, and life and death. To his, to his horror and shock, John saw Jesus executed on a cross. He was there. He was there within earshot. In fact, Jesus spoke to him from the cross. And then to his complete surprise, John saw Jesus alive again. He talked with him, he ate him, he even touched the wounds in his hands and side. John spent about three years with Jesus and those three years totally transformed his life. John and his brother, they never went back to their dad's business. Instead, they spent their lives telling people about Jesus. Later on, John wrote a biography of Jesus. We call it John's Gospel. And he also wrote three letters. It's the one that we're looking at now called One John. And then two other letters called 2 John and 3 John, imaginative titles, hey. Um, we're going to be working through those letters over the next two and a half months, those three letters. All right, well, let's dive into 1 John. Um, John starts off his letter by telling us his qualifications for writing. He says that he was an eyewitness of Jesus. In the first couple of verses, John describes Jesus as the word of life. He calls him something similar in his gospel as well. Uh, he says that this word of life, Jesus, he always existed. He says he was with God from the beginning. And now, uh, John says this word of life, Jesus, he has appeared. He's come to earth. And John says he and the other disciples, they, they saw him, they heard him, they touched him. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. All right, there's John's qualification. Eyewitness of Jesus, this word of life. Verse 3, he tells us why he's writing, why he's telling us what he's seen and heard. He says that he and the other disciples, the other people who knew Jesus, he says that they have fellowship with God and with Jesus. That is, they're in right relationship with God and Jesus, sort of like they have a, a friendship with God and Jesus. And John says he's writing to you and to me so that we can join them. So we can be in fellowship with them as they are in fellowship with God. That, John says, will give him great joy if we too would be in fellowship with God, with him. Verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Right, so here's a letter from John, eyewitness of Jesus, claiming to know how you and I can be in fellowship with God. It kind of rolls off the tongue. 
But just think about that for a second. That's a pretty unique claim, isn't it? How you and I can have fellowship with God. We are talking about the God who made us. We're talking about the the God who holds our eternal destiny in his hands. This is not an octopus telling you who's going to win the next soccer game or something like that, all right? This is way more. This is about where you could spend the rest of eternity. And he is claiming to have hard evidence that will enable you to be in right relationship with the eternal God forever. I hope he's got your attention with what he's saying here. So what's he got to say? What's John's message? What did he and the other eyewitnesses learn from Jesus? Well, first, John says, they learned something about God. They learned that God is light. That is, he is perfectly pure and holy. In God, there is none of the darkness of evil. Verse 5. This is the message. We have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. And the thing is, John says, that's got implications for anyone who wants to be in fellowship with God. Light and darkness can't coexist. You shine light into the darkness, the darkness is dispelled. You can't have light and darkness together. They don't mix Well, that applies to us and God, says John. You can't live in darkness and at the same time be in fellowship with God. You might think you're in fellowship with God. You're kidding yourself. Verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, verse 6, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. God is light. You can't walk in darkness at the same time be in right relationship with God. So what does it mean to walk in darkness? Who who are these people walking in darkness? Who are these people who who can't be in fellowship with God? John gives the answer he learned in verses 8 and 10. And it's not good news because, you see, it's you. It's me. It's all people. We are all in darkness because we are what John calls sinners that is we ignore god we disobey god we don't give god the love and obedience he deserves verse 8 john says if we think we aren't sinners again we're kidding ourselves verse 8 if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and verse 10 john says if we think we aren't sinners we're saying god is a liar because god says we are sinners verse 10 If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Who are the people walking in darkness? Who are the people who can't be in relationship with God? It's us. All of us. None of us are exempt. I know there are people around who think they aren't sinners. I remember one time I was introduced to a friend of my mother's. My my mum is not a Christian, sadly, but she she introduced me to this lady and she said, you'll be really excited, Jeff, my my friend, she's just become a Christian. I thought, oh, that's fantastic. A friend of my mum's is a Christian. And so it's the first opportunity I got her on her her own. I said, "Uh, this is fantastic, you've become a Christian, tell me all about it. She said, well, yes, I, I, I went to a Salvation Army meeting. 
I love all the good stuff that they're doing in the salvos, and so I joined a penitence class. You know the word penitent? Penitent means that you uh, admit your sin and you ask God to forgive you for it. You're kind of sorry for your sin. I joined a penitence class, she said, and now I'm a member of the Salvation Army. I said, that is fantastic. I said, so so what was it that made you penitent? What was it that made you realise you're a sinner? She said, I'm not a sinner. She said, I haven't done anything wrong. Here I am in the Salvation Army helping people. How can you say I'm a sinner? I said, well... You did just join a penitence class when you're not penitent. Uh, I would have thought that's hypocrisy and deceit. Maybe we could start there. Uh, But uh, by that time she was so offended she wasn't listening. Uh, Some people think that they are not sinners. But let's face it, uh, you know, the the cake is all around our mouths, isn't it? Anyone with the slightest self-awareness realises that what John says here is true. Of course we are sinners. We live as if God isn't even there. We certainly don't love and obey him as he deserves and demands. You just pick the first command in the the Bible, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Black mark against all of us. God is light. And we are sinners living in darkness. And so John's news for you and me, it is very bad. God is not our friend. There cannot be fellowship between us and God. But John also knows good news, the, the, the best news ever, news that he, he chucked in his career for, news that he spent his whole life telling people. Verse 6, John told us people walking in darkness can't be in fellowship with God. But verse 7, he says it is possible to walk in light. It's possible, he says, because of this man he knew, Jesus. Because of uh, what John calls the blood of Jesus. John says that the blood of Jesus purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. Go go back with me to verse 6. Verse 6, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. That's Old Testament image, isn't it? It's saying that Jesus' death on the cross is like an Old Testament sacrifice for sin. He dies in our place. He bears our sins so we can be forgiven and, uh, and uh, purified before God. Vivid image, don't you think? You can imagine our sin is like, um, it's like dirt on us. It's like kind of chocolate cake all over our faces or something like that. Jesus' death, it washes us clean. Jesus' death on the cross... Takes all the sin away like an ad for washing detergent. You know, you see a shirt full of stains, put it through the wash, out it comes beautiful, clean again. Jesus' death purifies us from sin, so we are clean and perfect before God. To mix the metaphors, we have our darkness washed away, so we walk in light. John says a similar thing in verse 9. Verse 8, he said, we're kidding ourselves and we think we aren't sinners. But verse 9, God says, John says that, uh, that God will forgive and purify us if we'll fess up, if we'll admit our sin and rely on Jesus. Verse 8 again, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's great news, isn't it? Isn't it? 
Through Jesus, God is offering to forgive us, to purify us, to accept us in the relationship with himself. Now, chapter 2, John says, uh, that's not something you want to exploit. You can't say, fantastic, Jesus has died for me. Now I can sin as much as I want and then get forgiven. That's not why Jesus died for us. And it's not why John is telling us about it. Jesus died for us so we can walk in light, so we can have fellowship with God who is light, so we will live to please God. Chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But the fact is we are sinners. And so this news is exactly what we need. In fact, it's exactly what the whole world needs. And so John says it one more time, yes, we are sinners, but Jesus has died as an atoning sacrifice, like the sacrifices God gave in the Old Testament. He died as the sacrifice for our sin. And now, uh, John says, and he introduces a new image, he says, he says, Jesus has risen again from the dead and he's there with God speaking to the Father in our defence. Chapter 2, verse 1 again. My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love that picture of um, the risen Jesus speaking on our behalf, kind of coming into the courtroom and defending us. I guess it, it uh, appeals to me as, uh, as an ex-lawyer because Jesus is being like a defence barrister here. He's acting as our advocate, defending us before the judge. I think I may have told you the story before of my friend Graham, who I went through law school with, who uh, was a solicitor when I was uh, working in the, in the Land and Environment Court. And Graham um, is a very competent guy and he fancied himself as a, bit, uh, as a barrister as well as a solicitor. He thought he didn't need barristers, he could just do his own speaking in court. And uh, he appeared before uh, the, the judge that I worked for one time and uh, there was a guy who had done some environmental damage and he decided not to get a lawyer. And so Graham thought, well, I won't get a barrister then. And uh, Graham stood up and he was making mincemeat of this poor guy. This guy was just an embarrassment. But uh, sitting up in the back of the court was this QC, a guy by the name of Mr Davidson. And Mr Davidson could see what was happening and during the course of it, he just took pity on this guy and he sort of whispered in his ear and the guy said, excuse me, Your Honour, I'm just, uh, this man, he says he wants to help me. The judge said, fantastic. And Mr Davidson, this uh, QC, stood up and poor Graham, <laughs> it was just embarrassing as this guy ran rings around him and uh, sure enough, the, uh, Mr Davidson got, got him off, got him declared not guilty. Well, here's Jesus acting as our defence barrister defending us before the judge and he can't lose the case he can't lose the case because through his sacrifice he's done all it takes for us to be pardoned for, for anyone to be pardoned if jesus is your advocate you are sure to be pardoned on judgment day you can't lose and so there it is this message uh, which john the eyewitness got from jesus what's the message god is light Sinners like us who walk in darkness cannot be right with God. But God has given Jesus to die and rise again. And so now we can be in fellowship with God. If we will confess our sins, rely on Jesus, we will be forgiven and purified and brought into fellowship with God. Now, I suspect this is not the sort of picture that most people have in their minds about God, is it? I mostly hang around with you guys now, but uh, you guys are 
mostly got jobs, you hang around with ordinary people, normal people. <laughs> not that you're not normal. Um, but uh, is this the sort of picture that the people that you know have about God, the people that you mingle with? I suspect it's, it's a picture that many people would find offensive, don't you? I, I don't just mean the idea of Jesus being a lawyer, although many people might find that one offensive. I mean, uh, I, I mean this whole picture of God that, uh, that John has given us. Most people don't imagine God as light, do they? The sort of pure, uncompromising light that will not tolerate darkness. I like the way John puts it both ways. He says, God is light, and you go, yeah, lovely. In him is no darkness at all. Suddenly not quite so lovely when you get the negative. Most people don't imagine that. Most people don't imagine a God who will refuse to accept sinners or a God who purifies people with blood. I suspect most people imagine a God who's more like fairy floss than light. In their minds, if God exists at all, he's a sort of a, a sweet, ineffectual old thing. He's very politically correct. He agrees with all the opinion polls. And, and he would certainly never discriminate on the basis of belief or behaviour. Most people wouldn't imagine the sort of God that John talks about here. But, but what we've got to realise is that John is not offering this as his imagination. He's not offering this as some kind of philosophy or speculation. He's offering us testimony. He's telling us what he learned from the Jesus who died and rose again, the Jesus he saw and heard and touched. And so the question is, well, the question is not, do we agree with John's testimony? The question is not, uh, uh, do we like John's testimony? The real question is this, is it true? Is this the truth about God? Now, I'm convinced that John is telling the truth. As I've studied the New Testament, I've become more and more convinced that, that John was in fact there with Jesus, convinced that this letter and the other New Testament documents are valid contemporary historical documents. I believe this is trustworthy testimony. And the thing that convinces me more than anything is this. It's the way that John and the other disciples were willing to suffer and even die for this testimony about Jesus. Uh, John's brother, you know, the guy who left uh, his dad's business with him, his name was James, he was killed for talking about Jesus, saying this kind of stuff. Uh, John himself, he was beaten up, he was put in jail, he was sent into exile, all for this testimony that he was giving. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples suffered for their testimony about Jesus. Eventually, nearly all of them were killed for it. And now you might say, well, that's not unusual. Uh, plenty of people in world history have died for religion. Plenty of people have suffered for what they believe. You only need to look at the world today. There are plenty of people willing to die for what they believe. But you've got to realise this. John, James, Jesus' disciples, they weren't dying for what they believed. They weren't dying for religion. They were suffering and dying for their testimony. They were suffering and dying for talking about the stuff they had seen of Jesus. They knew Jesus. They were there when he died. They saw him alive again. And as they spent their lives telling other people and suffering for it, not one of them ever changed their story. Didn't matter what happened to them. Danger, threats, torture, death. Not one of them ever caved in. John's not lying about this. I know enough about testimony to know this. You put the screws on 12 witnesses... And some of them are sure to cave. The fact that none of them did is convincing to me. John is telling the truth. Where does that leave us then? 
we, you can imagine any kind of God you like. But if John's testimony is true, then the God you imagine is not the real God. The picture in your mind doesn't match the evidence. And there's plenty at stake here. If what John says here is true, then things are not okay between you and God. If what John says here is true, then only Jesus can forgive you and give you eternal fellowship with God. If this is real, you and I, we desperately need Jesus. You can ignore the evidence, you can go on imagining what you want, but it's a massive risk. It's an eternal risk. This is serious stuff, and John's message to you and me is clear. We've got to change our minds. We've got to realise that whatever picture we may have in our minds about God, it's wrong, it doesn't match up to the evidence. We've got to accept that the real God is light. We've got to accept that we are sinners. We've got to accept that Jesus alone can purify us from sin. And then we've got to confess our sin to God and ask him to forgive us because of Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, it's interesting, but all too quick. I'm not ready to change my mind right now. Can I encourage you at the very least, look at the evidence. Don't hide your head in the sand about this. Have a careful read of the New Testament. Uh, Come and talk to me. I'll give you uh, books that have helped me to to understand, uh, to be convinced by this. John is offering us testimony. If it's true, it's the most important thing imaginable. So please check out the evidence for yourself. Let's come back to where we started. I might like to think of myself as all calm and reasonable, but my wife and my children know better, and and I've had to bring my thinking in line with reality. I like to think of myself as a teenager who can just jump on the squash court or something. The fact that I tear a muscle within five minutes, thanks, Mr. Brazel, um, indicates to me that I'm no longer a teenager. I've got to bring my thinking in line with reality. It's the same in my view of God. It's not okay for me just to imagine God how I would like him to be. Here is compelling evidence. God is light. I am darkness. Only Jesus can purify me. I've I've had to change my mind. I had to bring my thinking into line with reality. I had to confess my sin and rely on Jesus. Can I encourage you? I pray for you that you'll do the same. Let's pray now. Father and our God, we do say that you are holy, holy, holy. You are light and in you there is no darkness at all. Now we acknowledge, Heavenly Father, that we don't walk in the light. We don't always love and obey you the way you deserve. We are sinners who have never perfectly loved you. We confess our sin and we say thank you so much for Jesus who died as a sacrifice for our sin, that we may be purified and brought into fellowship with you. Father, do please help us to trust in him and and in him alone. And we pray it in his name. Amen.